So it's March 2nd, it's 2014, our message today is called Agony and a Crown. I pray that you're blessed by it, I surely have been blessed as God gave it to me. Look at Exodus 29 and verse 37. Say there when you are there. Thirty-seven, Exodus twenty-nine and verse thirty-seven. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy, and whatever touches it will be holy. Wednesday night, the entire message was about an altered state. Those that have touched the altar have walked away from it differently than they walked up to it. Having touched the altar, you're never again the same. The altar is most holy, and those who touch it have become holy. Amen? Amen. I want to tell you that the world and all the heavenly powers will kick against that truth. You may not feel holy. You may not feel touched from heaven. In fact, you may feel low, down, and earthly. But it is a struggle to believe this verse. It's a struggle to apply it to your life. You may well apply it to someone else's life and have all the faith in the world that it has worked for them. But to believe every day that you have been touched by God and therefore have become holy is an important truth in the life of a believer. I'd like to show you some men who were set apart for the glory of God. They were distinct from all of the others on the earth and set apart for a specific task. Turn with me to the 13th chapter of Acts. Say there when you were there. In the 13th chapter of Acts, our subject matter is a church at Antioch. And you need to know that in any healthy church, there are certain things that exist. The government of God, according to Ephesians, are apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. It's a joke that churches have a 501c3 tax-exempt status. The world has called it a non-profit organization. Unfortunately, that's become a double entendre for many in the church because the churches not only do not exist for profit, they have no profits in them. But the men of God who comprise the church are full of the Spirit of Christ. And the book of Revelation says the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of prophecy. This means when we gather together, the Holy Ghost has the right to direct what we do. The 14th chapter of Corinthians in the 26th verse says, Brothers, when you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, or a prophecy. Not some of you, not a few of you, not whoever you pay to do your religious service, each of you. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, he's given you a word. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, you have a message. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, you have been set apart for his service. Having touched the altar of God, you've now become holy and you've joined the struggle. Having joined the struggle, we need to know that there will be resistance. Are you with me in the 13th chapter of Acts? Verse 2. Now let's start in verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. 
Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. You mean in the first Gentile church we have how many prophets and teachers? How is it then that in an ordinary American church we have a pulpit with a pastor in it and that pastor is supposed to be all five members of the government of the church? This is because we have an American CEO mentality. One man to run the business. God's church is not a business. It's a living, breathing organism. It is the extension of his body on the earth. And if you rob the body of direction, you truly have a non-profit organization. In this instance, the very first church in the Gentile world, they had prophets and the Spirit of God was moving among them. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. I want to ask you as we speak this morning, has the Holy Spirit spoken to you? Has God, by way of his Spirit, set you apart from the world? Do you know what your function is? Have you embarked on what he's called you to do? So many in the body of Christ claim to be saved. Saved from what? Saved for what? Save unto what? Well, all I know is I went to an altar and I prayed a prayer. And I got my stamp as a USDA Christian. My baptismal certificate is in my baby book, you know. But the body of Christ is directed by Christ. It's set apart by Christ. And once you've been set apart, the Spirit has work for you to do. And so he'll begin to speak to you things that you have the right to refuse. There's a penalty for it, but you have the right to refuse it. In fact, so many refuse it that Jesus told parables about it. A parable about two sons. One who said, no, I will not do what the father has told me to do. Later he changed his mind and went and did it. And another who said, yes, I will do it. But he never did. Which of the two sons was blessed? The one who did the will of the Father. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, the Spirit speaks to us the will of the Father. We find this out as we meditate on the Word, as we worship Him, as we purposely set aside our will. Every day is a garden-like prayer that says, Not my will, Father but your will be done. And you can be sure, even as the Christ was in agony as he prayed it, you will be in no less agony if you are really wrestling with the will of God. Because it's never easy. If it was easy, he would have given it to the lost to do. It takes a supernatural son to carry out the supernatural will of God. And in this church, there were supernatural sons. And they were waiting They were waiting for the Spirit to speak. They were anticipating. They expected to be put to work. I sometimes think that the American church believes its job is to sit and to soak. You know, you can divide the world into two kinds of people, Matthew. Those who do the dishes immediately and those who let them soak. Soaking is supposed to make it easier. Easier to what? Procrastinate one more day? I don't find that the food gets any less soft or easier to remove in week 
two than it was in day one. Church, we've sat and soaked so long that we've gotten old and crusty. What the church needs is to be put to work. We have so apprised education. We have so apprised preparation that we've said, I'm preparing, I'm studying, I'm making myself ready, I'll eventually go, and they're dying today. What happens to them while we sit and deliberate? What happens to the world if the sons of God remain silent? Aren't we really saying we think what you've told us to do is too hard and we would rather wait and gather our strength? It won't come. He strengthens those who are doing his will. In fact, 2 Chronicles says that his eyes range the earth seeking those whom he can strengthen, those who are doing his will, a heart that is fully committed to him. Where is your heart this morning? Does the Lord have all of it or just a Sunday and Wednesday slice? Does he have all of it? Oh, church, you're going to learn. Even you white people, I'm asking you a question, and, and the question deserves an answer. Does he have all of your heart, Nolan, or just Sunday and Wednesday? Say it loud, son. There's everybody here. Does he have all of it, Mario? See, we say he has all of it. Let us let it be put to the test. Go back and examine your last week then. How much of it did he have last week? How much of it did he have the week before? Guys, troubles are bound to come. This last few weeks have been overflowing with them. But if you're in the Lord's business, you expect the Lord's protection. You expect the Lord's provision. You expect the Lord's providence. The problem comes when we're not in his business. We're scared. And our confidence is gone. You know why? We're often at playtime when it's work time. The Proverbs say it's a disgraceful son that sleeps during the harvest. I have no fear what comes out of the gates of hell because I'm in the church of the living God and Jesus Christ said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. If you know who you are, there is no place for fear. Bad reports come five minutes before I walked up to this pulpit Wednesday. I received three devastating reports and we're still here on Sunday. We don't have to believe the lies the enemy tells us. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work for which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The Holy Spirit has the right to set us apart. We do not have the right to tell him no and to delay, at least not without penalty. And friends, that penalty might be higher than you want to pay. The two of them were sent on their way by the... Come on, who sent them on their way? Was it a committee? Who sent them on their way? Was it a missions organization? The Holy Spirit of God is the great general of the church. He communicates the orders of the Father and it's carried out in the name of the Son. He has the right to direct our affairs. And if he's not directing our affairs, then we are not the sons of God. This is why the 8th chapter of Romans says as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So I ask you, is the Holy Spirit leading you? 
If he's leading you, we ought to be able to look back and see that we were not following a natural course. If we do what we like and refuse what we dislike, it's very hard to say that God is leading us. We need to make sure that we're honestly evaluating what lies before us and are we on the king's highway or are we on some lonely service road. When we're on the king's highway, there are no wicked fools besides us. When we're on the king's highway, it's the king's business done the king's way. You have reason to be confident when you're on the king's highway. The two of them were sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and sailed there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. So two men and a helper set out on the first missionary journey. The black lines that start in Antioch and then go down to Paphos and then start to work their way up past Lycia to Perga, those black lines are where they journeyed. Now, today you can get in a car and drive to an airport, and in about 26 hours you can be in India on the other side of the world. But friends, this distance took months. Now, let's think about what happened to them on the way. When we are sent on a journey for the king, when the Holy Spirit has set you apart from your companions and specified a work for you to do. They first arrive in a place called Paphos. In the 13th chapter and 8th verse, we're not going to put it on the screen. You can follow it in your Bible. They meet a man named Elimus. Another way to translate his name was Bar-Jesus. Did they encounter resistance? Could you get any stronger resistance than a Jewish sorcerer that everywhere you go preach, he is following behind you and saying, what they're saying is not right. I really have spiritual power. They don't. They had just about succeeded in having a proconsul, that's a government official, turn to the faith. When somebody in a position of notoriety has a sincere Conversion. People take notice. The enemy is fighting to prevent everything that we do. The man's name was Bar Jesus. You remember the dramatic encounter that happens? Saul looks at him and he calls him a son of the enemy and uh, one who is perverting the right way. And when he speaks to him, a darkness overcomes him, and he's blinded. There is a struggle in the kingdom, friends. The very first place that they stopped, the enemy had someone waiting. What if they just folded up and went home? The next place they come to is Perga. You can find that in the 13th chapter and the 13th verse. Do you know what happened at Perga? They're not even preaching yet. And do you know what happens? John Mark goes home. He said, you know, I know we were set apart by the Holy Ghost and all of that, and, and I said I was with you to the end, but, but the thing is, is, this is hard, you know? I thought every day was going to be like Friday, and we were the champions. Apparently, what he signed up for and the reality of what he was walking out 
didn't match in his mind. How many people do you know that are following Christ for a struggle-free life? They're following Christ because he's the great cosmic genie in the sky that grants all their wishes. They were told, if you come to this altar, put some money in this plate, you will have help in this life and heaven in the next. And so they followed a gospel of greed, not a gospel that signed up to give their lives away, but a gospel that simply promised them secondary gain. Friends, we are so rife with that that we can barely distinguish the truth from the lie. Our market is flooded with counterfeit. When you find a truthful, an original, a heaven-born copy, it's shocking. John Mark went home. You know why? It was hard and he was scared. Maybe he had been told that the body of Christ would never have to suffer. Maybe he'd just get raptured out, you know. And when it didn't happen, he just went home. Now, I'm sure John Mark told everybody he just heard from God to leave. I'm sure that what John Mark said was God changed his mind because this is what the church does. It rarely ever says, I sinned and I'm out of God's will and I need to repent. Instead, it says, you know, I tried that, but we're in a new season, you know. What has God told you and you put your hand to and you're backing up from? Because the workers of the kingdom are nothing if not persistent. By the time they get to Poseidon and Antioch, this is north and west of where they start. The 13th chapter and 50th verse says they were expelled from the region. Wouldn't you think if the Holy Spirit sent two anointed prophet apostles out, men who were capable of teaching, men who wrote the New Testament, that they would be received well everywhere they went? We never have been. Jesus wasn't. The true workers of the kingdom never have been. Thomas was drawn and quartered in India. James was hit with a mallet in Jerusalem and killed. John was boiled in oil. As many as you can name, none were treated well. But we're sure that pastors should have a celebrity status and Christians should enjoy an easy life. I want to ask you, when did it exist in history? In the first four centuries, the expectation of the Christian was martyrdom. The man Marcus Aurelius featured in the movie Gladiator was a real historical figure. You know how many Christians he killed every year of his reign? It averaged about 50,000 in the arena alone. They dressed them like sheep and sicked wolves on them. And you know what? They were happy to give up their lives for the glory of God. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They weren't waiting simply for prosperity now. They didn't have the calendars on their wall with 365 confessions of prosperity. And I doubt one of them had an Escalade with a license plate that said the apostle. This kind of buffoonery goes on in the American church. But it didn't go on in the first century church. And we lift them higher and higher because they speak well and sing well. And so many people listen to them, they must be right. 
Jesus preached nothing but the truth, and at his cross there were a handful of people that stood by him. Church, I want to be authentic. I want to stand by Christ through the trials of Christ. And he's promised to confer on us a kingdom. So let me ask you, is your life hard? Hard on what kind of scale? Hard on an India scale? Hard on an East Africa scale? Well, no, but, you know, for, the, for my peers, for my setting, it's hard. Well, it's supposed to be. This is how we find out God's with us. If there was no Elimus, there would no, been have no answer from heaven. Paul was filled with the power of God, and suddenly he pronounced to Elimus a judgment, and the whole world got to see God was with him. Amen. When they're expelled from a region, they left disciples behind. Everywhere they went, men were saved, but most men hated them. Be, beware or woe unto you, Jesus said, when all men speak well of you. By the 14th chapter and the 5th verse, they're in a place called Iconium. And they have to leave Iconium because there was a plot to stone them. When is the last time you heard a preacher speaking and because he was so effective in moving in the power of God, the people wanted to kill him? We love worldwide evangelists because they have nothing convicting to say to anyone. We, we celebrate them as heroes of our time and friends of presidents. We say they preach the gospel, but they never talk about an individual sin. They talk about sin in general. They say, oh, we're all sinners, which is akin to saying, it's all okay because everybody's doing it. But I wonder how many evangelists would have presidents as friends if they looked at the president and said, you, sir, are a monstrous sinner in the hands of God. And unless you repent, hell awaits you. But they don't. They don't. They smile and take their pictures and speak to ever-enlargening crowds. John the Baptist didn't speak like that. Jesus didn't speak like that. Paul didn't write like that in his epistles. This is a modern phenomenon. And they're celebrities, and we love them for it. I want one man sent by God who says what God says and who doesn't curry favor with men so that popularity will be more effective than the power of the Spirit. Pick up with me in the 14th chapter and the 21st verse. Have I offended you yet? Will the day still young? There's a hope. In Acts 14... Starting in 21. All I have to do is discover that verse and I'll be there with you. There we go. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples. You know what I left out? I left out something that's pretty important. Important. By the time they were on their way to Lystra and Derby in 14, 9 through 20, the plot in the previous city had been to stone them, but in Lystra and Derby it actually happened. In Lystra and Derby in Acts 14, 19, 
It says, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. The next time you hear the word great in front of an evangelist's name, ask him when's the last time he got stoned for preaching a message. The next time you hear what a powerful man of God someone is, ask him when he got stoned in that city, what happened next? Because do you know what Paul did? They gathered around him. They prayed for him. Whether he was dead or not, I don't know, but everybody thought he was dead. He stood up and went back to the city that stoned him. Come on, do Christians have grit? Is there some spiritual backbone in these men? I bet if the Apostle Paul was on Larry King Live and he was asked a question about whether or not something is sin, he wouldn't struggle to answer it for even a moment. I doubt Oprah Winfrey would want him sitting next to her on a couch. These men of God walked in the holiness of God, having touched the altar of God. And having touched the altar, they could no longer work for the favor of men. They wanted the Father's favor. And that meant that most would hate them, but the Lord would love them. I'm not talking about being contentious for no reason. I'm not talking about picking a fight. But let me ask you, how loving is it to sit next to someone that the hellfire is already burning in their lives and we don't tell them so that we don't offend them? See, we're not being good neighbors if we don't tell people about the power of God. And you need to understand that just like Paul told Timothy, many have accepted a form of godliness, but it has no actual power. They've learned to talk the talk. But nobody even expects to walk the walk. They pay a holy man on a holy day an unholy fee to tell them unholy lies. And everybody just looks around and acts like it's okay. The church of the living God is not like this. It's not how it started, and it's not how it's going to finish. The Christ, the Lord of glory, will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire. Those who are praised by men now are going to look for rocks to hide under and pray for the mountains to fall on them. I know this because the last living apostle of the first century, John, wrote it down. And he was in prison on an island when he wrote it. Every day is Friday, huh? Let us look at Lystra and Derby then. In verse 21, I'm sorry, after leaving Lystra and Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They're retracing their steps, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. What is the purpose of retracing their steps? To strengthen and encourage the disciples. So whatever comes next, whatever they teach next, whatever they say next, what's its purpose? To strengthen And encourage. How much preaching is supposed to be strengthening and encouragement? I mean, that's all we're trying to do is encourage people, you know? Listen to how they strengthened and how they encouraged. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true in the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. What strengthened them and what encouraged them? 
They were told, what you're going through at Texas Children's is normal. What you're going through in your household is normal. The trials that you're facing on a daily basis is normal. This is the route to the kingdom of God. It's supposed to be difficult because hell is trying to prevent you. This strengthened them and encouraged them. What if Paul and Barnabas showed up and simply said, God wants you blessed and prosperous. And by the way, poverty is a curse. Because this is what I hear every time I've turned. In fact, I threw away my TV so that I didn't have to hear it anymore. This is what I hear all of the time. That's not what strengthened them and encouraged them because that was not the experience of the early church. The early church experienced resistance on all sides. And they were the better for it. At least the lines were clear. To be a Christian meant something. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Say there when you're there. And then we'll get to the 11th chapter. Come on now, go with me. I haven't begun to get warmed up yet. What are you passionate about? Do you get more excited about the latest movie that's come out? I took my family to see a movie. I don't want to be critical of the movie. It was called Son of God. It's got a great title. In the world, we used to go watch tribute bands sometimes. Anybody know what a tribute band is? I don't want to rat my wife out, but I'm going to rat her out. She liked those bands in the 80s where the guys had long hair and... She liked hair bands. And you know, they were usually famous for a year or two. And then you could go hear people singing their songs in a skating rink doing covers of it. And let me tell you why it was fun. It was never quite as good as the original. But it connected you with a nostalgic moment where you first heard the song, right? Now, I'm not about to sing one of those ballads even for a second because we're Christians and we've turned our back on all such things. I can hear some of them going through my mind. But the tribute band is not the actual band, is it? And it always leaves you just a little bit hollow because while they're singing all the same words and maybe they're doing their best it's just it's missing something isn't it i'm gonna tell you the truth i'm sure the whole christian world's gonna jump up and down about the movie the son of god they're gonna be so excited that hollywood finally threw us a breadcrumb that they'll all say we should run right out and support it and the stevens did it was like watching a sad tribute band Because I know the guy that they're portraying, and he is magnificent. And I know about the deeds that they're talking about. I even know when they're singing out of tune, and maybe they got some of the lyrics wrong. Why you would try to improve upon the written word of God is beyond me by cutting parts out and adding parts that don't belong. It was weak and impotent 
And maybe someone out there will be touched by it. And this will be the justification for it. Of course, we have Bibles in our laps, don't we? Church, we're always looking for a shortcut, an easier way. We want the gospel to go forth without us having to do it. Now, I admire the people that produced the movie. I'm sure their hearts were fine. I'm sure all of the actors were wonderful people and are not going to participate in wicked films in the next year. I mean, we learned after Passion of the Christ how that works, didn't we? Why would we even look to Hollywood? Why would we look to the unholy to produce something that is holy? It says how worldly the church has become. Now, every once in a while, even a blind hog finds an acorn, and maybe there's something redeeming in it. I'm not discouraging you from seeing it. I'm simply saying to watch that rather than read this. It's like settling for a cracker when you could have a steak. Church, the power of God is available for every believer. And you don't need a movie. I want you to understand the absurdity of holding popcorn in this hand, a 70-ounce drink or whatever it is that they're selling now in this hand, and watching the crucifixion. Does that strike you as odd? I did it. Throw him no at me. I did it. And while I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, we should just go. When, When I'm hearing some of the things and, you know, I'm hearing Peter bribed by a catch of fish to follow Jesus thinking, who wrote this, man? Oh, but it was mostly good. My wife said, I was touched in, in, in several parts, and I was too. You know, Elvis Presley can sing a gospel song, and it'll touch me. That's not an endorsement of Elvis Presley. It means that truth's truth wherever you find it, but is this really our best source? Really, we got to go to a movie? I did it. I wished I hadn't. I wished I'd invested those three hours in reading that story to my children. You know, because when I read the story to my children, it doesn't come with previews beforehand. It also doesn't cost 50 or 60 bucks, whatever it was. You can support a pastor in India for an entire month for 50 bucks. Now, if you got the idea, I'm discouraging you from going to see the movie. That was not my point. My point, really is why would we settle for something weak when we have something so much better? But let me tell you why I settled for it. Because it was expedient and it was easy. But the gospel is not expedient and it's not easy. It's costly and it's valuable and it's precious. And it's valuable and it's precious because there are very few who will actually do it. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. Let us pick up in verse 23 off of the subject of a movie. One thing you have to admit at LCMF, the pastoral staff does not hide our sin. We do not try to appear to you better than we are. I hope you can see in it ordinary men moved by an extraordinary God. Because we mess up. We get things wrong all of the time. And yet somehow or another, God's been working through it for the benefit of everybody in the room. Have you been blessed? You're about to get more blessed. Listen to this. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. You have to wonder about 
uh, verbal plenary inspiration, right? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. And that was a God-breathed phrase. I do believe it was God-breathed, but that's kind of funny, isn't it? Like when Moses writes, he's the most humble man on the planet. How does that work? Yeah. Well, they say, Bosh, it's a great mystery, huh? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and exposed to death again and again. What is he talking about? His credentials as a servant of God. Why didn't he say, I've got the nicest Bentley? We only drink Cristal. Oprah comes to my house. The president and the secretary of state I barbecue with every weekend. And we know Jesus is Lord. Little footnote there to satisfy the critics. Why doesn't he say it? Because that is not the hallmark of a servant of God. Five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You see where we're going with this? What was his pedigree? His pedigree was what he endured for the kingdom. He said, well, Eric, I really, I came to this church today desperately needing to be strengthened, needed to be encouraged. You need to be strengthened and encouraged in knowing that if your life is difficult, it's exactly like every genuine believer that has ever walked the planet. These are 10 verses from 23 to 33 of absolute faithful endurance. He talks about shipwrecks. He talks about enduring the most difficult things on the planet. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. In 2 Corinthians 4, we find out why. And it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. For God who said, let the light shine out of Where does the light shine out of? You mean you don't get a conclave of light and from that light you shine to other light? The light shines out of darkness. Do you know what this means? You're going to have to be surrounded by opposition. You're going to have to be surrounded by spiritual darkness to shine light. You don't need the light in a well-lit room. Where do you need the light? Where it's dark. Church, it's dangerous where it's dark. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Before God ever allows a man to do an outward work, he has had to have done an inward work in the man. This may be why so many Christians are so inactive and so passive. They've never had the inward work. But once that light is busting forth inside your soul, you can't help but shine it outside of your soul. Church, it's important that we be more than Christians in name only. We've got to get close to the Father. We have to hear what He wants of us. There's work to be done. I was happy when I saw Ticha during worship today. She's been in Dallas and I miss her. 
We're a family of believers committed to the kingdom of God. There's no room for us to slack, not anywhere. I need my brothers, and my brothers need me. That's how the kingdom works. Look around you and say, I need you. Say it again. They need to hear it. There's nobody in this body that's expendable. There's nobody here that's extraneous. Everybody that is here is here because they were called of God's spirit to be equipped for work that is being done presently. But we have this treasure. Come on, do you have the treasure? We have this treasure. If I have a heavenly treasure, what on earth would I want to waste my time peddling the gospel for profit? What on earth would I want to go become a fisher of funds when the king of kings called me to be a fisher of men? I'm proud that people support our work. I refuse to beg anybody to do it. Instead, I'm going to challenge you to come alongside me and do it. It's not enough that you write a check for what we do. It's not. And if, let me just say something supremely arrogant and you can correct me afterwards. If you refuse to support what we're doing, then I think that you will see an eclipse of ravens bringing us heavenly provision from afar. It'll probably block out the sun because God wants this work done. And if you won't do it, you won't hinder his work. You just hinder your life. But most of you are. I'm proud of you. I'm not trying to raise offerings. I don't even know what our offerings are. I asked one question around the first. Can we pay rent or not? Apparently, it depends on what happens in this service. <laughs> but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What do the trials show? They show the origin of your strength. See, all of us are going to face trials, but the trial is the chance to prove the genuine nature of what heaven has put in you. When you walk next to somebody who has a form of godliness but has no power, the trial is the revealer. Say, but it's so hard. Yes, we can be crucified and say, Father, forgive them. We can be stoned and say, Father, forgive them. We can be torn limb from limb and know that it's going to happen and still show up because the power of God is inside of us. I love what Nehemiah said, should a man like me hide? Even if it's in a church. See, when you have Holy Ghost power inside of you, the trial is what shows it. Maybe this is why the scripture says, count it pure joy, my friends, when trials of various kinds come upon you. We are hard pressed on every side. Does that sound like an easy life? But not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Let's break that down for a minute. Confused, disoriented, hurting, but not about to slip into despair because I know who my God is. I want to brag on the McLeans for just a second. They're ordinary people with ordinary problems. I'm their pastor the Piros pastor them. So we've probably corrected more of their problems than you know about. At times, our hands have gotten sore and their backsides have gotten sore. But when the rubber has met the road, 
and they have the most assaulting thing happen that can happen to a parent. You know what they were doing when they got the report from the doctor? They were praying. You know what they were doing 15 minutes later? Laughing. And every 30 minutes to an hour, Sam and Nick were laughing with them because we got a report, we prayed, we trusted our God, then we laughed and had fun. Then we got another report, we prayed, we trusted our... And we did that for the first nine hours of the evening while the rest of the world slept. You know, this is the mark of a Christian. It's not that our lives are easy. It's that we can be perplexed without being in despair. We can say, I don't know why this is happening, but God is good. And he's got good things planned for me. I can stand on the other side of the planet and be perplexed that my wife is on the way to the hospital. But let my perplexity fall into praise because I know who my God is. This is a powerful prayer that prevails. The one that never loses sight of who God is in the midst of a trial. And it will cause others around you to go, I can't believe that they're not destroyed by what's happening. And you can laugh and say, nevertheless, God, I can handle this and as much more as happens because God is in me. There's a victorious power inside real believers. We are struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. See, it's when we are being crucified that what's inside of us becomes visible to everyone else. This is what it means to have a treasure in a jar of clay. It means something born of heaven becomes exposed to the rest of the world because of the violence and the pressure that is put on us. How could we seek to avoid it? It is the revealing of God's glory. I mean, is that sinking in for just a second? When you're torn at and clawed at by the world, when you're persecuted and put down by the world, It's like stripping off layers of flesh so that people can see what really powers your life. It's a good thing. The ancient rabbis understood it. Hillel is famous for saying, my humiliation is my exaltation, and my exaltation is my humiliation. Tell me he didn't understand it. The lower you beat him, the higher he was lifted in God's eyes. No wonder... Just prior to Jesus, he was considered the greatest sage in Israel's history. If you've got to get bumped off by somebody, it might as well be Jesus. Amen? <laughs> for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. I watched Stephen and Dee Dee. I came back from India and I drove to Dallas because after you get off of a plane for 27 hours and travel by car for 24 hours in India, what you can't wait to do is get in a car and drive to Dallas. At least there's beef jerky on the way to Dallas. In India, there is none. And I'm not going to lie, my butt hurt. And the trip up there, I was not all that excited to be in a car. And when I walked in to the room where they were staying, do you know what they were doing? I mean, 
They've received devastating news. They've been told there's cancer cells everywhere and there's a flood of fluid and, and bad, depressing news is trying to creep down on them. And do you know what they were doing when I walked in the room? They had their Bible open and were witnessing to the other person in the room with them. And before long, they had their hands on that person and were praying for them. And before long, somebody was preaching to them. And before long, we were having church. You want to find out where genuine faith is? Find people in their trials. Everybody's house looks okay from the outside. Light it on fire and see what remains. You find out what's precious when the fire's turned up. And you know what? I'm not scared of the fire. I stood on this stage some months ago. I've often questioned the wisdom of the statement, but I'll never question the efficacy of it. I said, we can take all that the devil has and more. Bring it on. But that's how you find out what is real and what's not. Church, when fired, there we go, when fired, do we find out what's real in you? Do you crumble under pressure as this when God's strength is revealed? You know, there's another reason that I wanted to share this with you. How many of you think Albert Einstein was an absolute idiot? I mean, anybody out there said, oh, E equals MC squared? I did that in kindergarten. How many of you know the formula and have absolutely no idea what it means? Show of hands. Yeah, me too. Fred Hall can explain it to you, and I appreciate that. At least one of us needs to understand it. We'll appoint him, our scientist, and the rest of us will listen and pretend to understand. I want you to hear this quote and then pay attention to the date. Being a lover of freedom, when the revolution came, I looked to the universities to defend us knowing that they had always boasted of their devotion to truth. But no, the universities, they took refuge in silence. Then I looked to the great editors of the newspapers whose flaming editorials in days gone by had proclaimed their love of freedom. But they, like the universities, were silenced in a few short weeks. I then addressed myself to the authors to those who had passed themselves off as intellectual guides of Germany and among whom was frequently discussed the question of freedom and its place in modern life. They, in turn, were very dumb. Only the church stood squarely across the path of Hitler's campaign for suppressing the truth. I had never had any special interest in the church before, but now... I feel a great affection and admiration for it because the church alone has had the courage and the persistence to stand for intellectual truth and moral freedom. I am forced to confess that what I once despised, I now praise unreservedly. That was a quote from December 23rd, 1940. Put that in context, friends. A German Jew saying, I never had any real affection for the church. I did praise universities. I did praise authors. I did praise editors. But in the onslaught of evil and difficult times, they all let us down. But the church took up the fight. Now, I'm not going to lie. Any real study of World War II gives us the impression the German church did far too little. 
But there were men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that did all that could be done on their part. I just wish there had been more of them. Let me tell you why I'm telling you that. When God becomes separated from government, it changes things. You know, our Declaration of Independence begins a certain way for a reason. The Creator has endowed men with certain unalienable rights. Once you decide that there is no Creator, then there are no unalienable rights. Can you feel the air changing? Not because of this administration. Get over it. It's an administration. It's been going on for a long time. Can you feel the direction of shift in our country? Could you have ever believed that in the heart of the Reformation in Germany, we could have the greatest holocaust that the world's ever known? Could you believe in a nation that was begun by Protestant Christians? We could have a holocaust of unborn babies like the world has never known. We've lost more babies to abortion in this country than in all U.S. wars combined. When God becomes separated from a government, it changes things. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. What does that tell you? His wrath is on the world unless you escape it by getting into Christ. What happens then when we want to exclude him from a role in our government. What does that do to a nation when it becomes a crime to pray at a football game? What will that do to a nation? See, you don't have to be a prophet any more than you have to be a prophet to know when you jump out of a plane what's going to happen. 9.8 meters per second squared is going to happen. You're going to hit the ground with as fast as you can accelerate to terminal velocity, and for you it'll be terminal in more than one way. Do you have to be a prophet to know that, or do you know that's the way it works? I can tell you when you divorce God from the American government, curse comes. I can tell you that. I don't, I don't have to be a prophet. I've read the prophets, and they've already said it. How about economy? In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus clearly said, a man can't serve two masters. If you're offered the chance to have freedom or to have bread, this will put that in context for you. I don't know what to think about Benjamin Franklin other than he was brilliant. He said, man who will sacrifice a little liberty to gain a little security deserve neither and we'll lose both. The economy has become the staging ground to accept whatever we're told we must accept. You remember that there was a presidential campaign that was lost, a declarated Air Force veteran who had served a first term, said, read my lips, there will be no new taxes, and then there was a new tax, and he was lambasted by it. But a man who admitted to smoking dope that everybody knew was an adulterer before was elected. Everybody knew because he could play a saxophone and speak like an angel was elected. And his famous quote was, it's the economy, stupid. In other words, Americans will accept anything if you give them a good economy. Do you know who else was like that? 
Following World War I, Germany was devastated. The war reparations that they had to pay at the Treaty of Versailles were so high that the people were demoralized. They were so sunk in debt that no German would ever see the light of economic life. They suffered from something called hyperinflation, meaning you could take a wheelbarrow full of cash but could not buy bread. The joke was that you could take your marks and they were more useful for lighting a fire than they were than for buying matches. Who gave them a great economy? Hitler did and they loved him for it. The tide is turning here, friends, and it's time for the church to arise. If an economic crisis deepened in this nation to the place that went past your Starbucks prices, to where you weren't sure how you were going to feed your children, what might you accept? Another one, what happens when legal becomes evil? And evil is legal. So, oh man, I can't imagine a day like that. Isaiah said, men who put forth good for evil and evil for good. He said that. Say, oh man, how could that happen? Well, in 1973, we decided it was legal to murder a child. How does that happen? Say, oh, well, it's just a choice. Could you put that into context for me? It's just a choice. Why, don't, why do people never finish that sentence? I am pro-choice, they say. Pro-choice for what? Could you finish the sentence? I am pro the choice to murder a child. You see, this, this reveals a couple truths. When our legal system is no longer based on a creator, then law is whatever we agree that it is. It has no particular moral value. Do you know what the defense for the Nazis was at the Nuremberg trials? We've broken no laws. These, these were the laws of Germany. Who are you to tell us our law is unjust? Do you know what the presumption was in the 40s? There's still a creator, and he says that you've broken these laws. You've broken laws of humanity, they said. Of course, that was at a time when the United Kingdom... And America still believed that law came from a great lawgiver. What has happened in the last 20 years? We've taken those ideals out of our courtrooms. Why am I talking to you about enduring adversity? Let me ask you something. Is there anybody here that thinks Jews are subhuman since we worship the king of the Jews? That's a deplorable idea, isn't it? Did you know that the Supreme Court of the United States effectively has declared that babies are subhuman? They don't have the same rights as other humans. Just prior to coming out of the womb, they don't have a constitutional right to exist. It's your constitutional right to murder them. What kind of society are we living in? Yeah. What kind of society are we living in? And what does the church say? You ever been mad at the churches in Germany because behind their churches was a railroad track and people were in those carts going to a furnace? What's happening around? Oh, it's just a choice, you know. Don't, don't make waves. It's a political issue. It's not our litmus test for choosing a candidate. Forgive me, but the hell it's not. I refuse to sit and speak with a man who would kill a child 
or thinks it's right to do so. It's only the grace of God that I let him exist while I sit next to him. How does that happen? Well, we found out through propaganda. The father of lies knows that if he repeats a lie loud enough, long enough, people believe it. So, for instance, if you begin to say loud enough, long enough, that gays are born that way. If there is a God, it's his fault. If you begin to say that long enough, before long, whatever you've said loud and frequently feels normal. Does propaganda have the power to shape a nation? Jeremiah 5.31 speaks of this. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority and my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? We live in a day where men say things they know is disingenuous when they say it, but they know if they repeat it at every news cycle all week, the vast majority will accept it. There's an entire industry built on it. It's a pseudo-religion called global warming. How many of you have been to India with me? If you eliminated every car from the United States, could you touch the pollution in Chennai alone? No. I can feel it on my teeth in the morning. I was driving yesterday, and I'm very proud to drive an old, large, four-wheel drive diesel truck. And there is a cloud of smoke behind me. And I put a performance chip in it to make the cloud bigger. (laughs) And as I was accelerating, a couple guys in their little spandex shorts on bicycles got to find out what it was like to smoke. Not saying it's right, I'm like the young people say, just saying. I just came back from India. Everything's like that there. I've seen pictures of China. Hope to go there soon. Propaganda is something that is said loud enough, long enough that the cultural current begins to shift that way. In Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13, he says, Because of the love of wickedness, most will grow cold. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Next verse, But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. In other words, the vast majority are going to fall in love with the lie that is repeated over and over and over until it becomes normal. Could your grandparents have ever conceived of a day when the Supreme Court of the United States would say you don't have the right to say gay marriage is not a marriage? Could your grandparents have even conceived of that? Church, we need to wake up to the times that we're in. We have hate speech legislation that is very well in the next few years going to make it illegal to read from the Bible in public. Men like David Wilkerson warned us of this in the 70s. Much of it's already happened in Canada. Did you know in Germany it's illegal to homeschool your children? 
That's not World War II Germany. That's Germany today. What happens when the state becomes responsible for parenting the child? You know, I'm not telling you you should pull your kids out of school. I'm simply saying that I got sick of hearing things stated as fact from my children that I know were lies because they heard them eight hours a day in school. Not trying to depress you. I'm telling you through many trials and tribulations do we enter the kingdom. And now I come to the point. Took me an hour and six minutes. Here's the point. The real faith has always been a struggle. And if you live in a world where your faith is not a struggle, it's not faith at all. The Word actually teaches us that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I didn't make that up. That's 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 14. That's what it says. So Paul was not in a unique category. Barnabas was not in a unique category. That's what Christianity is. The group of people that are persecuted so that you can find out what's in them is genuine. And if you read it till the end of the book, it never changes until Christ returns. It's a modern lie that it does. It builds big churches, though. You know, it's our job to train up our children in a way that's right. Do you believe that? then we better be careful if we let a state that says there is no God and Steve and Steve can get married and it's wrong for anybody to say otherwise and killing a child is simply a choice. We better be careful letting them train our children. You might consider again your college fund and what university it is that you want to invest in so that someone can teach those lies to your children. At some point, the church is going to have to make a distinction between that which is evil and that which is not. Let me introduce you to a Greek word. Agonai zome. Agonai zome is number 75 in your Strong's Concordance. This is worth writing down. It comes from a couple words. It comes from a word that means conflict or contend... Agon, and then by the time you put it together into its compound form, it says, figuratively, it is the task of faith in persevering amid temptation and opposition. It also came to mean to take pains to wrestle as in a, a contest, straining every nerve to the uttermost towards the goal. Can you hear the word agony in it? It implies hindrances in the development of a Christian life. It involves special pains and toil. Let's look at a few places this is translated. Go with me to Luke 13, 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Make every effort is this Greek word. Make every effort is to strain with every nerve and fiber of your being to go through special pain and toil. Strain, fight, contend with every effort 
to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try and not be able to. Tell me what that means. That means that so many will think that they are, but without fighting, contending, straining with every nerve, they won't make it. How could the love of most grow cold? How could there be a great apostasy? Nobody ever told us it would be quite this hard, you know? Are you hearing me, church? I thought I was just supposed to be blessed. I hated the truth and I loved the lie, so I received the delusion. How about 1 Corinthians 9, 25? Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Everyone who competes, competes is such a pale word compared to this one. The actual word is the one we're speaking of. Everyone who strains and contends, everyone that employs every fiber of their being, everyone that goes through special pain, toil, and tribulation does it to win something. They're doing it for gain in this life that will not last. But why do we do it? But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Are you striving? Are you straining? Tara, is life hard? Of course it is. Because you're in the faith. Cass, is it hard? Hold a baby in your arms and all of those questions come to mind. What did this child ever do? Why this child in a crack attic has a baby every day who doesn't want one? Why can we go on a Saturday down to the abortion mill and see them walk in and kill their babies by the bushels? But this baby, born with half a heart, it's a strain. It's difficult. And you receive a crown of life for it. You ever see somebody stand in line on Black Friday? There's videos every year. It's better than the WWF wrestling I watched when I was a little boy. They use shopping carts, push each other. Every year there's somebody injured. Some years people are killed. They say they do it because the items are cheap. I say that's a complete misunderstanding. They don't do it because the items were cheap. Things that are cheap don't mean anything to you. They do it because the items are expensive. You will fight for what you value the most. And if you will not fight for it, it shows how cheap it is to you. Are you hearing me? So are you fighting? Of course. Are the McLeans fighting? Of course. And how is it that we fight? We don't fight like men who are beating the air. No, we have an aim. We have a purpose. We have the Holy Spirit as our general. Sometimes the most effective fight in the world is to say, nevertheless, God, and just laugh. Sometimes the most effective strategy in the world is to say nothing. Have you ever watched how Jesus interacted with Pilate? Is it true that you're a king? Did somebody else tell you that about me? So it is true that you're a king? You said it, I didn't. 
You know, how do you see how he acted with Herod? He didn't open his mouth speaking to Herod. He refused to dignify him with a response. Church, we need to learn to have a discriminating taste again. We need to learn what it is to contend and to be in contention for the faith. How about Colossians 1.29? To this end I labor, struggling. That root word is agony again. To this end I labor, every fiber of my being, with every ounce, every nerve, through special toil and pain, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Tell me that the Christian life is easy and I say we failed to understand the word. 1 Timothy 6.12 is a man of God speaking to a son in the faith. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Both words fight there are agonai zome. He says, struggle, contend with every fiber of your being, the good struggle with every nerve, every fiber of your being for the faith. Agonize for the agony of the faith. This is not a popular message, but it is the real one. And I'm going to tell you, the most popular message that you hear preached in the end proves to be a delusion because anyone who trusts in Christ will be persecuted. And when you are, if it is your expectation, you see it as a chance for God's glory to be revealed. You see it as a divine opportunity to show the genuineness of what's inside you. If you're taught that it can't happen, it shouldn't happen, it's not in God's nature to let his bride be beaten, then you feel assaulted and lied to. And your faith is shaken to its core because it was never real to start with. This church is going through a pounding right now. When that happens, some of the fruit falls off the tree. Some of the leaves do as well. But God's able to put them back on again. Look at 2 Timothy 4. Let us read 7 through 11. And I want you to see the results of this struggle. Say there when you're there. This is one you will probably want to mark. In 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 7, we will close with these verses. That's my little encouragement to you to not give up till you get the end. I have fought the good fight. He has agonized with every fiber of his being, strained through every trial, toil, in a good way. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That sounds a whole lot different than just name it and claim it, doesn't it? That sounds a whole lot different than the bless me gospel. This is a man who experienced shipwrecks and snake bites, who stood before kings, and they eventually cut his head off. But this is his testimony. Now there is in store for me what? A crown of righteousness. Struggle now means kingship then. You can be a king now or you can be a king then. Me and that Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman, would rather be a dog in the faith 
than a king now. I'll settle for begging for the crumbs from the master's table. I'll humble myself now, struggle now, because I know I'll be a king then. It just shows trust, friends. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will award me on that day. They can say our law is simply something men agreed to, but I know the lawgiver. And just because they've said something is legal does not mean it's moral. I love Wade Sutherland. I'm going to brag on him for 60 seconds. They offered him a job at a place. Wade said, you can send me the description and you can send me the salary and what you're going to find out is I'm infinitely qualified and it's far more money than I'm making now. And I'm telling you no in advance because it's not what God's doing in my life. I said, well, you know, it's ministry and if it's not really a no, then you probably should go just to check it out because, I mean, you, you never really know. At the very least, you get a free trip out of it. He said, thank you, friend. I know that you mean well. He said, but I'm not comfortable using God's money in that way. It was a church. He said, I'm not comfortable using God's tithe money in that way. The thing is, is I have to account to my father. I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong. I'm simply saying, I can't do it. I answer to the judge. They respected it so much, rather than try to get him to go work for another church, they asked if he would come help run their organization. They needed somebody like him. Oh, come on, church. There is a law that is above what's going on here, and it's imperative that we live by it. You still with me? Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Croesus has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. In these verses, we find out that if you will agonize in this struggle, there is a crown for you. We find out that just like Demas, deserters are going to happen. Not everybody loves it and values it this much. Anybody who says that you cannot fall away has never actually embraced this book. They've embraced their doctrine and read the book in light of their doctrine. You cannot read First and Second Timothy and come away with the idea that once saved, always saved is true. This is an invention that is sending people to hell. But you also need to know that this man that he calls Mark is the very same John Mark that deserted them on their first trip. And just because a man fails early in his life does not mean there's no hope for him. Just because a man in the struggle is overcome today does not mean God's not able to breathe life into him tomorrow. There is always hope. Where are you in your struggle? Some of you, like John Mark, have turned back. 
You set out fighting a good fight and it was harder than you thought and so you set it aside. And the Holy Spirit of God is saying, you work for me and I'm able to breathe life into you again. Oh, church, will you stand to your feet? Some of you have been laboring but are tired. No matter how hard it is, there's no quit in you and yet... You need his strength because you don't have enough of your own. That is what Christianity is. And some of you are brokenhearted for the Demases in your life. You thought they would run next to you forever, and they're not there now. I'm here to tell you that it has always been this way. And we can hold out hope that a young John Mark can repent and become the writer of the gospel, Mark. And we're here to say, the race is not over yet. You're not going to be judged by how you started the race. And the middle of the race is important, but it doesn't define you. What defines you is finishing in the struggle of faith. You know, the great love of our God His mercy allows us to adjust every day. Maybe all you hear is the Spirit saying, pick up the pace, pick up the pace, pick up the pace. You're going to have to account for how God's dealing with you. As for me and my family, I don't want any more spiritual junk food. I'm not going to settle for crackers when I can have steaks. I don't love sleep so much as to miss another anointed prayer time. I don't love entertainment so much as to forsake something that is unshakable for something that at best throws out a kernel of truth and a whole bushel full of garbage. Church, this is our adjustment time. We gather together in this place as a family to encourage those that are tripping on the way to pick up those who have fallen, to pray for those that are off the path to come back and to make whatever adjustment in our heart we have to make to get to the end. Please don't lie to yourself and say, I'm okay, you're okay, it's all okay. A lot of people have gone to hell that way. Those who really love the Lord know what it is to repent frequently.